Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Kia ora and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only program from RNZ Sport. Coordinates Garland Time. In the program this week, Joseph Parker will finally get his crack at a world title fight. The All Blacks put the Aaron Smith saga behind them as they stare down the prospect of a record 18th consecutive win. Brendan McCullum speaks out about his relationship with Chris Kenz in the wake of match-fixing and perjury allegations. Lydia Coe's coach urges her to overhaul her schedule amidst a form slump. The Silver Ferns end their season with another loss and swimmer Glenn Snyders calls time on his career. New Zealand boxer Joseph Parker will fight Mexican Andy Ruiz for the WBO World Heavyweight title in Auckland in December. The WBO title was vacated by Britain Tyson Fury earlier this month after revelations he was suffering from depression and drug addiction. WBO gave the order for Parker and Ruiz to fight during its convention in San Juan in Puerto Rico. The bout is likely to be on December 10th. Mike Angove is New Zealand's leading combat sports analyst and commentator. He's a former professional boxer and has followed Joseph Parker's career since he was an amateur. He told Kim Hill that this bout is a big deal. Oh, it's certainly historic in terms of New Zealand boxing and also global boxing for, for Joseph in terms of increasing his profile in, in the US and giving him, uh, you know, should he win, a real bauble of leverage, if you like, with the WBO title when it comes to negotiating super fights with the likes of uh, Joshua Klitschko or, or Deontay Wilder. People say that Joshua and Klitschko could, should be the, the guys fighting for this. People can say what they want, but at the end of the day, you have sanctioning bodies um, and they're all independent. Parker is rated number one in the, in the IBF, so he's got a mandatory against Joshua and he's rated number one in the WBO with Klitschko rated number two. So consequently, Parker has earned his right to be there. Klitschko, of course, having been the WBO champion and having lost that title to to Tyson Fury, certainly has a a claim that um, he should be a contender. But right now, you you, you follow the rankings. And and the other thing is, Klitschko, uh, at this stage in his career, um, is really pursuing uh, big money fights and, and that big money fight is likely to come from the likes of uh, Anthony Joshua in the O2 Arena or if he manages to stage it in Europe. It's quite a complicated scene, isn't it, boxing? Oh, it's fraught with politics, uh, questionable ethics and commercial reality. You know, it is professional sport and sanctioning bodies, businesses, um, as opposed to... I guess amateur sport where the uh, the process is a lot more clear. So, so definitely it's a convoluted process, and uh, I think you, you have to credit Duco for their uh, manoeuvrings um, and putting themselves in this position um, because certainly it, it takes 
a lot of commercial nous and, and a lot of, I guess, intestinal fortitude to actually uh, get yourself in, in front of the right people and uh, make the right moves. What are the questionable ethics that you referred to? Uh, I think boxing for a long time has been surrounded by, you know, grey and, and, and murky figures. Um, you know, that's part of uh, boxing history. You look at the likes of Don King, for example, um, would perhaps be your prime example. But, you know, in terms of uh, what we're talking about at this level, that would certainly be speculation. It's more of a, more of a business deal. But uh, there's certainly a, a lot of, uh, you know, backroom dealings that, that go on, you know, in terms of uh, developing fighters and getting uh, fighters into the, the right position. It's about money and it's about audiences. What audiences do you think that the World Heavyweight title match in Auckland might get? Well, um, again, Duco announced yesterday they've got a deal with uh, one of the, one of the largest uh, sporting uh, events broadcast companies um, in the world. This will be going out to over 100 countries, so it is absolutely massive in terms of the the broadcast appeal, and that's critical to staging an event like this because uh, in New Zealand we obviously have limited bums on seats that you can get into a stadium. So the eyes on screens in terms of uh, pay-per-view and advertising revenue are absolutely critical to be able to afford to bring fighters, not just of of the calibre of of Ruiz and Parker here, but also the undercard, you know, which has to be an international class undercard as well. So it's a huge undertaking. So those, those critical broadcast deals are absolutely essential. Mike Angove speaking with Kim Hill. Faced with the possibility of securing a record 18th consecutive test victory when they play the Wallabies at Eden Park, the All Blacks found themselves with two choices. They could ignore the elephant in the room or they could embrace it. As rugby reporter Joe Porter reports, they've chosen the latter as they prepare for tomorrow night's Bledisloe Cup finale. The All Blacks have dominated all comers this year and are chasing an unprecedented 18 consecutive test wins for a top 10 nation. It's the only mountain they're yet to conquer and coach Steve Hansen says it's vital they embrace the world record attempt. Challenges like that are things that make this All Black team really tick and get them excited and that's what you need. You know, you need little challenges along the way all the time to, to keep raising your performance and um, whilst it's, it's something that we, we want to do, uh, it won't get in the way of the process. So that's how we know if we get the processes right, then you know, we'll get the outcome if we're good enough. While the All Blacks are chasing history, the Wallabies are fighting it. They haven't won in Auckland in 30 years, losing 16 times since their last triumph in 1986. Coach Michael Checker says they have to accept the challenge of playing the world champions at their Eden Park fortress. Oh, they bring it on. It's a great opportunity and it's going to be a tough environment, but that's where you want to be. If you don't want to be there playing those games, where do you want to be in footy? It's no, no good to have it all comfortable and, and rosy. When it's tough is when you've got to stand up. No Wallabies team has ever suffered two 3-0 series drubbings in a single season, but that's exactly the record the current side will have if they lose tomorrow night. While the Wallabies remain bullish about their chances, current form and the bookmakers give them almost no hope, with New Zealand paying just $1.05 to win, with Australia a $10 long shot. Even the ever-diplomatic former All Blacks captain Richie McCaw says the Wallabies will need a miracle.
There's very little between the top teams, and you only got to turn up just not quite on your game. And I just look at the the comments from the Wallabies coaches and that this week; they're pretty damn determined. So you know, if the All Black boys aren't on job on the job, there's a chance, but I hope not. Tomorrow night will mark another milestone when the New Zealand women's team, the Black Ferns, take on the Wallaroos for the first ever men's and women's double header at Eden Park. The Australian skipper, Ashley Hewson, is warning her players it will be like nothing they've experienced before. A couple of the experienced girls um, still have been to well, several World Cups, but to play at Eden Park against the best team in the world, especially before the boys, is going to be, it's going to be a pretty amazing experience. The Wallabies coach, Michael Checker, says it's about time the women were given the respect they deserve. I just think it's normal that, you know, we should play a doubleheader because I just feel like it's a natural progression for the game that these two types of events would happen and that um, the girls who are contributing more and more into their craft are getting recognition by getting the opportunity to play on the big stages. The Black Ferns will be protecting a record of their own on that big stage. They've never lost to Australia, going unbeaten in 13 tests. Joe Porter with that report. Meanwhile, the All Blacks camp has moved on from the Aaron Smith saga. Following the announcement, the halfback had withdrawn himself from team selection for the Bledisloe Cup test. Smith was given a formal warning from New Zealand rugby after an incident at Christchurch Airport, where he entered a disabled toilet with a woman while wearing All Blacks team uniform last month. Matt Chatterton reports. The All Blacks assistant coach Ian Foster wasn't interested in talking about Smith at today's press conference. We're into test mode now and what, what Aaron is doing is in the right interest of him. Foster's stance is somewhat understandable given the importance of this Saturday's match. The All Blacks are attempting to break the world record for most successive Tier 1 wins. They're currently on 17. However, given the public attention surrounding the incident as well as yesterday's announcement that Smith stood himself down from the test voluntarily, it was always going to garner interest. Smith's All Blacks teammate Jerome Kainor was willing to spend a little more time talking about it, though he towed the same party line that it was in the halfback's best interests to miss the test. He's got a clear way forward for himself and, and he's got a lot of help in that area, so um, we'll support him when we can, but he's got a clear way for him to, to get better and, and, and to, to focus on himself. County's Monaco halfback Augustine Pulu has been called into the All Blacks camp as cover for Smith. Matt Chatterton with that report. The former New Zealand cricket captain Brendan McCullum has a new book out which outlines the last few years of his career and his thoughts on the game. In Declared, McCullum talks about the conspiracy theories conjured up following his appointment as captain and also his involvement in Chris Cairn's much-publicised brush with match-fixing. McCullum spoke to Catherine Ryan on 9 to Noon this week. He says he never wanted to see his former teammate rot in jail, but that he doesn't want to have anything further to do with him. McCullum was a key witness in the perjury trial of Chris Cairns last year, where Cairns was found not guilty. He says he struggled through the judicial process, feeling that he was the one on trial. McCullum says he's unlikely to speak to Cairns again. One thing I couldn't work out at the time is I felt that I was the one on trial um, and I found that really hard to deal with because ultimately I was a, I was a witness in a case and no more no less that was my responsibility. I had to had to follow through with that. I wasn't the one which, which brought attention to the issue in the first place um, from a media or public point of view and I certainly wasn't the one who was, who was in the gun um, 
for uh, for the, their actions. Um, but I, I'm a very forgiving person. I, I don't keep a lot of grudges at all. Um, and uh, I think I also mentioned in that in that uh, those three pages that the last thing I wanted to see was one of my former teammates rotting away in a cell. Um, and and I'm actually pleased he's not. Um, but I still don't. I can't forgive the other behaviour, um, the way that that became um, more effectively lobbied to to put me in the gun um, publicly and, uh, and and to heap a lot of pressure on. And and that was what I struggled with. And and hence why. As I say in, in that passage in the book, um, I want no, nothing more to do with them. Another matter that you provide answers on in detail in your book is how you came to the captaincy and this matter of whether there'd been some conspiracy to replace Ross Taylor uh, and, and what was said to him on his final tour as captain. And this was clearly an unhappy tour, not only an unhappy tour, but a lot of unhappiness in New Zealand cricket, The cha- you know, coaching changes, fallouts between coach and other uh, others in the leadership uh, team. You dismiss firmly in the book being part of any such conspiracy. In fact, you say at the time you personally addressed Ross Taylor, you know, saying to his face he needed to lead from the front, things had to change. He'd already been told that he was losing the captaincy. But what's still not 100% clear, however, was whether the coach and management did change their mind over some matters, whether he would continue as captain at least in some versions of the game. Can you confirm whether or not there was a change of heart on that front? I honestly don't know, and it's not a question I've ever asked because, quite frankly, it doesn't matter to me. Um, I was, I was asked to initially. I was asked to captain the one day in T20 sides. They offered me that that job. I said to David White at the time um, that I need to get back to him, and I spoke to my friends and my family and, and worked out whether it was the right thing to do. And then, and, and then after that, I was offered the Test captaincy once Ross had turned it down. What happened before that? Um, I wasn't in that room. I don't know. To me, it appears as if fractures have been mended. Um, if, if we look at the team over the, over the last little while, um, especially Mike Hesson and, and Ross Taylor, they appear to get on really well, and, and, I, and I hope that, uh, that that has mended that relationship. But what happened in that room or what, what was asked at that time, I have no idea. But I know that the way that everything unfolded was uh, was not a great time for cricket at all. Um, but look, I think in the end, the way we were able to transition the team from what we were to, to what we became um, is something that I am proud of being able to be a part of. You talk about how the IPL, the professional leagues, have, quote, taken money out of the equation, unquote, the context being the need for cricket players, good cricket players, to worry about money. I think you went for something like 700000 at your first auction of the professional leagues. Have those leagues also taken something else out of the game? The pure love for it that you describe in this book. And have they allowed corruption to, to fester and to become almost, I don't know, accepted in some places? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, my, my take on it, there's a lot of animosity towards T20 leagues around the world because it is seen as a dirty, uh, money-hungry sort of... Uh, Wheel which which keeps on turning, but the thing and and a lot of people say that it takes away the joy of Test cricket and the I guess the romance of the sport. But again, I slightly disagree because I think if we look at those leagues and we look at the impact that those leagues have had around the world, forget the financial side of it. If we look at just in pure um, awareness of the game and bringing new people and and um, and new supporters into cricket. That, that to me is what it's been able to do. It's brought, it's brought millions and millions and millions of people who would never have been interested in sitting down and watching cricket for five days into the game and, and 
develop a passion for it. Eventually what unfolds then is those a fair percentage of those people then begin to fall in love with test cricket. And so I think if we look at it from that point of view, I actually think it's had a really positive impact on international cricket. I also think from a playing point of view, the fact that you can walk into a change room, and I was lucky enough to share a change room with Ricky Ponting and Saurav Kanguli and these guys in my first in my first IPL, it made those guys more real because I think coming from New Zealand, we can often, as a New Zealand cricketer, we could often look at those guys and have them far, far high up on a pedestal to what we were. And so when it came down to the crunch, we probably didn't feel adequate enough to compete against those guys. When you share a dressing room with them and you understand that they have the same insecurities, the same pressures, the same concerns that you have as a player, uh, it makes you feel a lot more relaxed and comfortable just in your own skin. So I think the T20 leagues, I understand the concern about them, um, but I think overall they've been outstanding for the game and, and they've helped not only monetize the sport and, and put it in a more uh, secure place, not just players but boards and grassroots cricket, etc. But I think from a fan point of view, um, you know, we've opened up, we've opened up new, new areas too. Brenda McCullum, and you're listening to Extra Time. Lydia Coe's recent slump in form has coincided with the New Zealand golfer's split from her Australian caddy, Jason Hamilton, who was on the bag for 10 of her 14 LPGA Tour victories, including her two majors. Following her silver medal performance at the Rio Olympics in July, Coe has failed to find the winner's circle, and just last week the world number one produced her worst result of the season, a tie for 51st in South Korea. It's the first real time Co has suffered a serious dip in form, and her coach David Ledbetter says it's down to a mixture of issues, including fatigue, external stress, and her relationship with her now ex caddy. She hasn't had her best stuff really since the Olympics, and uh, I think the biggest one more than anything else is fatigue. I think if you look at uh, the other players, too, it's affecting probably Brooks Henderson, it's affecting um, Aria Jutanagan, and, and um, you know, it's a long, long season, and I think that uh, this seems to have finally caught up with Lydia. She's uh, she's a little bit flat. She's not putting quite as well. She's short game is not quite as sharp, and so everything's just a little bit off. You know, and it, it's it's interesting the fact that uh, you know she's had such a tremendous year, and it's it's very hard in this game to keep your levels at that height. You know, continuously, there's always going to be a letdown. There's always going to be a period of time where your game is not at the highest level. I mean, it's happened to the best, whether it be Jack Nicholas or Tiger Woods or Anna Kassarastam. I mean, there's been periods during their careers where, for whatever reason, uh, and so you can't just put it down. Yes, she's did a few poor shots, and she's you know, her course management hasn't been sharp. And, and I think also, you know, she just separated from her, her long-term, uh, long-time caddy. Uh, so I think that's been on her mind as well. So... You know, the past couple of weeks, for sure, that's definitely affected her. She's a very sensitive young girl. And so I think uh, it was something that it was it was very, very tough for, for Lydia. Uh, I mean, it's just part of life and uh, part of a tour player. And, you know, caddies are going to come, caddies are going to go. Uh, and so it's been interesting. I mean, there's been a lot of she's, she's put a lot of pressure on herself. She's finds it difficult to say no. So she's had a lot of commitments and, uh, you know, she was fatigued. Whole sort of a scenario. So it's a, a perfect storm where you know she's just. Uh, you know, I think more than anything, more mentally tired. I mean, look, she's had a, a fantastic year, regardless, uh, no matter what happens the rest of the year. And uh, and then we'll uh, reassess things uh, after the last tournament and uh, get ready for next year. Because 
it's it's tough. I mean, the way the LPGA set out, they have a lot of their tournaments in a row and a lot of good ones, and then they have some breaks. But uh, she doesn't want to disappoint the sponsors. I mean, she's trying she tries to play as many tournaments as she can. But I think longevity-wise, you know, she's really got to pace herself. As you mentioned, this is probably the first time we've we've seen Lydia have a form slump like this. Do you think how she copes will sort of be a testament to her future and her longevity in this sport? Well, yes, absolutely. I, I think it's all part of the learning process, to be honest, because it doesn't matter who you are. I mean, all the greats, at some point in time during their careers and you know a little and it'll probably happen again with Lydia I mean when she comes out of this which she will she'll come out of it I mean hopefully very shortly but it'll happen again where for whatever reason you know golf is just it's always hard to be perfect in this game and to play at the highest level and you know you're not going to win every week regardless of how well you're playing I mean obviously there's lots to do with the other players but I do think she'll learn a lot from this and how she copes with it and how she handles it and how she can you know, bounce back. I mean, it's, it's a lesson for the learning and uh, it's an experience that, hey, you can only relate to if you've gone through it. And so I, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world, to be honest. I mean, it's, uh, you don't want it, obviously, to continue. And, yeah, I mean, when I, I say that from a standpoint of she is a, a young player who's got a tremendous number of years left in the game and uh, these are experiences she's going to have. And so they're not always going to be win, 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 win. And there are going to be times where it's like, you know, she struggles a little bit and you know, it could be the result of an injury, it could be fatigue, it could be, who knows, you know, a number of things, you know, just the fact that your your mind is not quite into it. And uh, so, uh, you know, we've, we've got a working with, a, with a, a sports psychologist in the U.S. who's had tremendous experience working with uh, lots of premier athletes and so on. And so uh, I think she, she'll be fine. I mean, Lydia has that sort of personality where she's, She's always positive. She's always bubbly. And regardless of how she's playing, you know, you wouldn't know. That's a great thing about her. You wouldn't know when you look at her or if you got, even if you talked her after the round, if she finished 40th or if she won the tournament, she's still the same, which is a tremendous asset to have. So uh, I'll say to the all, the all her fans in New Zealand not to worry. Lydia will be, Lydia will be just fine. <laughs> what advice have you given her to get her through this? I, I just say, listen, be patient. It'll it'll come around. I mean, it's, it's golf's very and so it, it goes in cycles and golf largely is, is all about momentum and when you've got momentum going on your side it's almost you get the good bounces the good breaks the putts fall when the momentum going against you the opposite happens you get the bad bounces and putts slip out and you make poor decisions with your yardages to the green and hit the wrong club and so on it's just it's just the way it goes it's just sometimes it's a very confounding game which uh, you can't always a, a reason why what, what's actually happening if you knew exactly what was happening obviously you'd change it in a heartbeat but sometimes you sort of it's, it's a very slow sort of thing that creeps up and as i say i know i know for a fact that the olympics took an awful lot out of her it really did and then she she really hasn't sort of recovered since then and so uh you know she's played very average for lydia since then but uh the fact that she's uh had such a tremendous first half of the year really is uh superseded the fact that uh, she's had a poor couple of months and so but uh, as I say uh, hopefully yeah, we've still got uh, another month or so left of the season and uh, one big tournament at the end of the year and so hopefully uh, she'll bounce back and she'll be uh, I know she's looking forward to a nice long break at the end of the year and then we'll get ready for 2017. Lydia Coe's coach David Ledbetter. 
The Australian Diamonds have held on to the Constellation Cup for the sixth time in seven years, with a 3-1 victory over the Silver Ferns. The Ferns showed plenty of guts, but finished without any glory as they went down 49-45 in the fourth and final test in Invercargill. The Diamonds showed their dominance, winning the first and third tests by 12-goal margins. The New Zealanders won the second test, 53-51, to keep some interest in the series. After the Invercargill test, I spoke with Ferns defender Anna Harrison, who says while they played reasonably well, they did miss a few opportunities. Well, it felt better than the last game defensively. Um, I think one of the things that we can be proud of is we kept them to 49, and that's quite a feat, really. But um, we didn't capitalise on the ball that we had. Yeah, they got a few easy runs in that third quarter, which didn't feel very nice back there in the keeper. They still went over my head a few times. But there's a few positives to take, but um, it's never nice to be on that losing end. As you mentioned, the team right through the court was very strong on defence, but it was that difficulty sort of moving it through the mid-quarter and then trying to find the shooters. Do you think there was maybe a little bit of panic that maybe set in? Um, I think just maybe our timing was out a little bit. Sometimes from my end it looked like we got caught static and asking for ball when we're standing still and we can't, you just can't do that against Australia because they're hunting that down. Um, and you've just got to muscle up and then it's full on for, it's full on. It's a really physical game now, isn't it? So you just got to keep battling it out. Was the, the match, did you find it yourself, a, a yet another level, level of physicality? I know Australia are always a physical side to come up against. You know, from my end, no, it was very similar to what you usually play. I wouldn't say it's any more physical than it is. It can change by, I guess, what umpires are calling. And But from my point of view, no, sorry. It's, it was pretty much the same intensity that it usually is in there. Now, obviously, it was very, very exciting finish for us to watch. You pulled it, almost pulled it back to, the, to one goal with uh, less than two minutes to play. Did you really believe that you could win it right until those final few moments? I did. We had our chance there right in that sort of last minute and a half. And um, when we lost that bit, it was definitely like, oh, this is going to be a long shot now. But, you know, anything's possible. So you just got to keep going until that final whistle goes. There's been a lot of change in the team um, this season. There's a, a lot of youth who've come through. And obviously um, both Janine and Katrina having their first season as coach and captain. How do you feel that that's gone and the improvements that the team has made? We can take great pride and some of the gains and the improvements that we've had. I mean, it, it is quite a new team with some really young blood. So we definitely got to take a lot of positives out of it. And it is a building phase. So it's great to be a part of it. I've been around for a while and I'm definitely um, happy to contribute in whichever way I can. But yeah, it's exciting for people to have all these young ones. And you guys were sending off Laura Langman, at least temporarily. How big of a loss is she, especially as sort of the, the fact that a lot of young ones are coming through and, and she's a leader in the team? We acknowledged Laura's last game before we went on as well. We sort of said this is, actually we cheered her name, which I think she felt a little bit uncomfortable about, but um, she's a real asset to the team um, and is leaving us, well, it's a, it's a great time really if she's going to do it. It gives us a year to see what we've got, see what we can, I mean, she's not going to be around forever, so it's a great timing in terms of seeing who can slot in there and um, it's a good challenge for a lot of players. Step up. Anna Harrison. The New Zealand Olympic swimmer Glenn Snyders has this week announced his retirement from the sport, saying his body is no longer up to it. The 29-year-old is now based in Los Angeles and is one of only four New Zealand swimmers to have competed at three Olympic Games.
Snyders currently holds the national records in all men's breaststroke events, both short course and long course, and is the only New Zealander to have gone under the minute mark in the 100-metre breaststroke. I caught up with Glenn Snyders after his announcement, and he says once the Rio Games were over, he realised just how difficult it was for him to keep up with the rigours of the sport. I'm just mentally and physically tired, and I feel like ending on my third Olympic Games is a great note to you know, call my retirement and begin my new life, really, after swimming. I'm just recently married, and you know, like I want to sit down and get a real job and start a family. At 29, you are obviously getting on it a little bit as, as a swimmer. Is your body telling you that it is time to, to take a rest? I think it is. Well, I should say for the past year or two, I've struggled quite a lot more than I, I used to uh, just physically. You know, I felt like my body wasn't recovering as well as it used to and practices were becoming hard. And just trying to cope with that every day was, I think, mentally draining me. You look back and on things that you used to be able to do and sets and times and practice and, you know, like I used to be able to do that and now it's like, you know, almost 100% harder. So I think, yeah, you've got to listen to your body. You're the only New Zealander to have gone under that minute mark in the 100-metre breaststroke and you're also only one of four New Zealanders to make it to three Olympics. But now that you've decided to take this decision, are you looking back at, at a lot of what you've actually been able to achieve in your career? Making Rio was always my ultimate goal, and I hadn't made that decision to retire after Rio until you know I got back from Rio, and I, I wanted to leave it open. I still love swimming. After Rio, it was a great note to end on, and it did give me a chance to, to look back on my whole career as a whole, rather than just that year, you know, for Rio, you know, making it to three Olympics, making it to three Commonwealth Games, six World Champs, you know, winning a Commonwealth Games silver medal and a Pantax bronze medal, and you know, in the Olympic final in Beijing with the the medley relay team, you know, like there's a lot of things that I would take from my career, and I'm very proud of how I've done. Basically, you know, I've been on the national team for 12 years straight, and I don't think I can make another four years. You rattled off quite a few achievements there. Do you have a career highlight? I think it would be make the Olympic final in 2008 uh, in the medley relay with Cornet, Cameron Gibson and Daniel Bell. I think we're the only New Zealand relay team to make a final. And it was special because that was also when Michael Phelps won his eighth gold medal. So, you know, to just be part of that, I think, is, is the highlight of my career. You mentioned that you have been part of the national squad for 12 years straight. Over the past decade or so, there has been a tendency for New Zealand to, to falter a little bit on the international swimming stage. And I guess that was highlighted a little bit by uh, lower performances than expected at, at the uh, Olympics this year. Do you think that New Zealand swimming is perhaps a, a, at a little bit of a weaker point right now in its history? I wouldn't say we're at a weaker point in history. I think times are just changing, and New Zealand swimming has gone through a lot of uh, changes in the past four, even eight years, and we just don't have that depth anymore that we used to. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's been some controversy too, and not some good performances, but you've got to realize, like, and I don't think the public quite understands how swimming works, but everybody in the world is moving forward, and it's coming down now to where technical things is what makes it in the sport, I would say, you know, like financially and 
a lot of countries are pouring a lot of money in and they're getting good results, whereas the public see us as failing and our funding is cut, but then you expect to fill the world-class performances. You know, it, it doesn't quite add up. Sure, and in your opinion, is New Zealand swimming getting enough support and is it attracting the right kind of people, not only uh, swimming-wise, but at the managerial level as well? I don't think so. Uh, our funding is getting cut. And you're asking, like I said, swimmers to do these top 10 placings or top 8 placings in the world and some of them aren't even funded and it, it becomes quite hard. Back to you personally, obviously you're entering a, a new stage, a new chapter in your life. What is next for you? Right now I'm just basically getting my immigration papers sorted out so that I can end up living here in California uh, with my wife. And then after that, I do have a few things in mind. I would like to become a firefighter here in uh, Los Angeles. But right now it's just taking things slowly and uh, just kind of relaxing a little bit, I guess, after so long competing and being active. Glenn Snyders. And that's extra time for this week. Follow us on Twitter at RNZ Sport. I'm Denise Garland. Kakite Anno. 